Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, the best cheesy horror movie of all time. I'm pretty excited about this episode because I think there are really special and surprising things going on with this. So we asked half a million horror fans online that question, what is the greatest cheesy horror movie ever made? And we've got a clear winner. It was a tight competition, so we've got a lot of good voting and commenting to break down on this episode. So the first thing I did not expect with this was how controversial this subject was going to be. I mean, we've I'm not like the biggest horror comedy person in the world. Um, I'm probably a little too serious personality wise. So, I, you know, we've done some pretty weighty subjects, some pretty dark and intense movies on this podcast. Um, the saddest horror movie death of all time was one of my favorite uh, community votes that we did an episode on. And I was like, all right, well, this episode is going to be really light because it's a light subject. And then like a whole a war broke loose in the voting over the definition of what cheesy actually means. So let's try to get that out of the way before we jump into the actual voting, where I'm also really excited because for the first time in this podcast, I'm going to make my own personal pick the same pick as the winner from the community voting. I don't usually do that. Even if I agree with what you all have chosen as like the number one uh, pick, I, I try to like bring in another movie to talk about just to get another angle on the conversation. But this time, um, this, so part of this episode is just going to be a love letter to this movie. This movie is so special to me. It's one of the movies that made me a horror fan in the first place. I was really glad to see that it got the top voting, but I was like, there's no way I'm not talking about this movie uh, myself because it's it's one of my favorite movies, but I'm not, not horror movie, movie movies of all time. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, what is cheese? Here's what Michael Davis had to say on the Facebook page, uh, the Horror Weekly page in the voting. He said, quote, genuinely my favorite genre of films can honestly say I'd rather watch cheesy horror over almost any other style of cinema. So choosing my favorite is very hard. Frankenhooker, Leprechaun, the whole series, but number three specifically, Reanimator, Demons, Critters, and still dozens slash hundreds more, unquote. And the reason I'm starting with that comment is, I mean, look at the variety of films this one person is voting for. There were a lot of people who didn't want to consider Frankenhooker a cheesy horror movie. I think that we are going to need to have a spectrum here. It feels like light cheese to me. I never for a moment considered Reanimator cheesy just because it's such a exquisite film that I never thought. I mean, let's be honest. My, I think going into this, my definition of cheesy was something like unintentionally bad but fun or maybe I don't even know the intention matters. Sometimes you can pull off an intentionally bad, quote unquote, bad or, or fun. But I think that definition is wrong. I mean, I mean, is is Leprechaun bad? No. Is Critters bad? No. I could see how like a film critic might have thought those movies were bad, but that's not what we're about here. And like there was so such a wide variety of films in the broader voting. I mean, some people said Fright Night which I did not, it was a title I did not expect to see in the voting. 
And then it swung all the way from Fright Night to um, Cindy, who's uh, in our support supporter group, supports the podcast. Thank you so much, Cindy. Um, she says that her husband voted for a plan nine from outer space. And there's a wide range of quality difference between plan nine and Fright Night, I, I think. So there were people in the comments talking about campy horror movie versus cheesy. And it went on and on. I was like, you know what? I got to get this episode going. I'm going to rework my definition. So the definition I came up with is movies that intentionally lean into very well-known tropes. So like, let's use corny one-liners or let's use a bunch of cliches. Let's scare a bunch of teenage cheerleaders. Let's bring in some scary clowns. And I think the humor element is important, whether you're laughing at the movie or with the movie, even though, as you'll see from the list, cheesy movies can also be quite scary in parts. One of the top winners in the voting, this movie has a scene in it that's so disturbing, it's really hard for me to watch. You're going to laugh so hard when you find out what movie I'm talking about. And all this to, is to say that cheesy is not an insult, by the way. It is... Uh, it could be if it was if you were using it as like a movie was trying to be really serious and came off as really cheesy. But the way we're using it here is not an insult at all. These are some beloved and pivotal horror movies we're going to be talking about. So starting out the countdown with a few dozen votes was Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolarama. Kendra Carpenter kicked us off on the voting for this one, saying, quote, this is always my answer to this question. It's literally one of my favorite things ever, starting with the incomparable and iconic Linnea Quigley. Audio from the film was sampled on Static X's single I'm With Stupid off their debut album, Wisconsin Death Trip. It has throwbacks to classic horror, terrible puppetry. Puns involving a character named Taffy. It's loosely based on the classic horror story, The Monkey's Paw, and cheesier than Alfredo sauce. I came to love this movie as a child watching USA Network's Up All Night with, Gil with Gilbert Gottfried and or Rhonda Shearer with my older brother. One of my favorite childhood memories. I think I'll watch it again if I can find it. Okay, sorry. I horror nerded all over the place, unquote. Don't apologize. That's an amazing comment. And a really fun movie. Um, and with a few more votes than that movie, we have Neon Maniacs. Jose Gonzalez kicked this this voting off with, quote, This movie is such a beautiful piece of crap. I love it. Scenes that go nowhere. And for some reason, monsters that have no coherent theme. It's amazing, unquote. Now, I got to confess, part of why I do these things, aside from trying to get the podcast and get a conversation going on our uh, pages, is to build myself a watch list. Um, I've seen a lot of horror, but I by no means have seen it all. And I have not seen this movie, so I'm very excited to check it out. Okay, then we had about a four-way tie at the 100-vote threshold. So with around 100 votes, we had Ghoulies, Blood Diner, Bad Taste, and Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 with the famous uh, It's Garbage Day moment. And then our first breakout movie with more than 150 votes is Toby Hooper's Life Force. Now, I love, love, love Life Force, but I came to this movie really late. I didn't watch it as a teenager. 
So I, I, mean, I don't like Life Force possibly for a lot of the reasons maybe some other people do. But you know how sometimes how you first experience a movie can really impact how you feel about it. I saw this in a restoration in a theater uh, on a big screen, uh, you know, whatever millimeter looked amazing. And, it, you know, I had previously done a podcast episode called uh, Horror Movies with Bad Intentions. I love movies that try to take something away from you instead of give you something. Instead of just giving you entertainment, they're going to entertain you, but they're also trying to take away, like, your certainty about something in life or make you question your beliefs in certain things. I like when a movie is ambitious enough to try that. Well, Life Force is not a movie with bad intentions, but Life Force is a movie that if you see it on a big screen with a really rambunctious crowd will make you question your own sanity. <laughs> this movie is just so unhinged, but also so beautiful to look at and listen to um, on a screen that way. Like I did not ex expect the effects to be that good from the reputation the movie has and just its eerie blue color palette and all the the crazy things going on in it. It's just a movie I was really taken with. And I think Toby Hooper is possibly the strangest of the major horror directors of his era, the Romeros and the Cravens and the Carpenters. Like, Craven can just feel like a big brain sometimes, the way he operates. And Carpenter can be pretty forbidding and, like, um, misanthropic. Romero's a lot more polished uh, than people give him credit for, but Toby Hooper feels like the most human of them somehow to me. So I'm here for all the Toby Hooper love. Um, just ahead of Life Force came Blood Diner, which is a really fun movie. And then with more than 200 votes, we have Maximum Overdrive from 1986, Directed by, and I believe still his only directing credit, Stephen King himself. It's interesting, as I'm recording this, this is the day of the release of a couple of great horror movies, also from 1986, um, Night of the Creeps and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, speaking of Toby Hooper. And now looking at Maximum Overdrive here, also from 86, it just reminds me of how interesting that year was for horror. But Maximum Overdrive is always like such a fun moment for me when it comes up on our pages because there's I can tell there's a whole crop of people. I saw this movie pretty young. Um, it didn't scare me at all. But I think there's a bunch of people who saw this, maybe even younger than I saw it, who were terrified by it. And I find that really interesting because as silly as that movie can get, it's one of those first movies that kind of thought through what we would end up thinking through a lot more now with like Tesla self-driving cars and AI, just machinery out of control has gotten way more relevant over time than less. And that movie's just got a great cast, a killer soundtrack, unforgettable moments of mayhem. Now, a little bit ahead of Maximum Overdrive is Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Now, I think Prom Night 2 is a fantastic movie with a couple near-fatal stupid flaws, but still just an incredible watch. There's an interesting behind-the-scenes dispute about this movie. The producer, Peter Simpson, um, said that he thought this was going to be his, quote, 
fucking best horror film ever, unquote. But he claimed that he didn't like the way the director, uh, Bruce Pittman, handled a lot of it and that he had to reshoot with Samuel Goldwyn about half the movie. He claims it was going to be a non-prom night related movie when the script was first developed, just called The Haunting of Hamilton High. But they ended up making it a prom night sequel, which I don't know what he was thinking. Of course, this is a prom night sequel. What else are you going to do in Hamilton High, for God's sakes? But maybe that complicated history explains a couple of the flaws in this movie. But let's first just talk real quick about what's great. And also whether it's cheesy or not, which I think we can just get out of the way. I, I didn't. I remember loving this movie. I actually watched it on the as of the last drive-in episode when Joe Bob did it um, for my first rewatch in a long time. And now I rewatched it again just before recording this podcast. And um, while I was rewatching it, I was like, this movie is pretty amazing. Is this even cheesy? And then the kid gets zapped through his computer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a cheese fest. Never mind. But first of all, Lisa Schrage, who, Schrage, who plays Mary Lou Maloney, makes this whole thing. I mean, her performance is incredible. She's actually fairly frightening. I don't think I'd survive a stare down with her. And just her sinister glee as she waltzes through this movie is amazing to watch. But to be honest, all the performances are good. I mean, we even have Michael fucking Ironside in this movie, who's an incredible actor, although they don't really give him a lot to do in this one, unfortunately. But he still kind of steals the moments he's in. He's like magnetic on the screen. The main character, Vicky, is also wonderfully performed by Wendy Lyon. She was in The Shape of Water. She played a secretary in that. So she's got acting chops for sure. As a matter of fact, she's so likable that I think it really makes the movie worked to a large extent that she gets so ruthlessly possessed. I mean, I'm going to spoil this movie, so if you haven't seen it, you might want to skip ahead uh, two minutes here. But her full-on possession by Mary Lou happens relatively quickly, and then as soon as she's possessed, there's none of that, like, exorcist moment, um, fight from within, fighter Vicky. She's gone. She's erased. That character is full-on Mary Lou in Vicky's body, for almost the full remainder of the movie after it happens. And I remember the first time I watched this thinking, are they, did they just get rid of Vicky altogether? Is this poor girl, like, she's shot, her body's going to get killed, and she never gets one chance to come back into the movie and say anything or even fight for her own body? She's just, like, gone? It gives a kind of funny movie a weird tension. And I got to be honest with you, even though the ending looks really good because they finally get to have Michael Ironside act creepy for like full on creepy for the first time in the movie, which is a great visual. I kind of just didn't like the ending. It felt I if they had just gotten rid of Vicky, f kept her gone from the jump, it would have been super rattling. <laughs> Audiences probably wouldn't have liked it, which is probably why they didn't do it. But I would have loved if they Dick Hallorander there. Well, anyway, Prom Night 2 is definitely up there on my list of the better remakes of Carrie, because that's basically what this movie is. With a good deal of Nightmare on Elm Street thrown in here. I mean, this poor Vicky, she gets like Big lebowski a couple times, where she gets knocked out and goes into like dream hell. But it's just how inventive the movie is visually and also with the kills. The way 
they get rid of Jess is so interesting. They tease you with the the huge paper cutter thing and then make it look like it's going to be some kind of hanging situation and then just chuck her out a window. And it's great perspective where they put the camera on the ground after we discover her dead. It's a lot like what Hitchcock did in the end of the psycho shower scene. We've got the amazing rocking horse sequence, which is, I think, the one everyone talks about when they talk about how outrageous this movie is. But it's actually the chalkboard getting sucked into chalk, the chalkboard and the random scrambling of the help me letters into like the way they end. I, it, it gives me a chill every time I watch it. I mean, actually unsettling. This movie definitely doesn't pull any punches with the uh, what it does when it kills the priest, which is. Not just a great death, but also a great body body discovery scene. And then the locker crushing thing is just ruthless. Now I'm going to be comparing this movie a little bit to our winning choice, which I can't I can't wait to talk about. But there's that old saying about how conservative horror really actually is underneath. It seems very radical, but it's always punishing the people who are sexually licentious. It's enforcing kind of like male dominance a lot of times. Basically, if you break the moral and ethical rules that are common to society, you end up going to hell or getting killed mercilessly. And I think there's a lot of that in this movie, and I'm not sure how aware the movie is of it. Mary Lou is the grand exception, of course. She's breaking all the rules, but she definitely gets ultra punished. There's a great moment when she's uh, giving confession to uh, the priest and She's writing on her side of the confession booth, leaving her number for the next people to come by, saying, if you're looking for a good time, call Mary Lou. But, like, she gets immolated in the beginning of this movie. She doesn't even get to enjoy being prom queen. Now, granted, she is um, acting in unfortunate ways to some of the characters. So, like, I guess that makes it. They're not going out of the way to make her sympathetic. Obviously, she's the villain, but... She, I mean, she burns to death first, right? And then as soon as they find out her ghost is coming back, the the people who killed her, who were complicit in it, the one who actually killed her and then the one who I don't know what he was trying to do. It, he could have, like, tried to save her help and he just, like, was crying on the floor, banging his fists on the floor. It was, like, the worst rescue attempt I've ever seen. But these two guys, um, as soon as the the reverend gets word that she's coming back, he tries to do like a full on exorcism, which is a great moment in the movie. But he's like, be gone, demon. I mean, <laughs> demon, this is just like some poor girl who's come back for revenge that I'm, I think is semi justified in a way. And now you've got her like sitting right hand to Satan right next to Beelzebub. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense to me. Anyway, I just think prom night two is an extravagant good time anchored by an all-timer performance um, from Lisa Schrag. Just great stuff. Okay, let's talk about our third place, second place, and first place movies, or as I know them, the Night Trilogy. Apparently, if you're going to make a great cheesy horror movie, get that word night into that title somewhere. Because in third place, we have Night of the Demons, which is, I mean, we all know this movie. <laughs> Don't need to talk about this a lot. Um, in second place, which is the movie that I, I mean, I, I think because I have, I'm going to have a little issue with calling our first place winner actually cheesy. Um, if 
I didn't think of it as cheesy. This would have been my pick. The absolute masterpiece, Night of the Creeps. I've got good news. Your second place movie is here. I've got bad news, though. It's dead. I've got more good news, though. It's got Tom Atkins in it, who is just always amazing. I heard another podcast I was listening to describe some movies as a good sit. And this is Night of the Creeps is is a great sit. It's just endlessly, extravagantly rewatchable. Such a blast and a good time. But now let's get to the winner. To my mind, one of the greatest horror movies ever made, 1984's Night of the Comet, written and directed by Tom Eberhardt, starring Catherine Mary Stewart, Kelly Maroney, and Robert Beltran. Now, even when I was young, I prized a movie being memorable for some reason as one of, it was like one of the things that made movies most important to me. If I could rerun a scene in my head or, you know, if basically I'm not talented at at sketching, I'm not an artist that can't draw, but like if I was talented, could I sit down and from memory, how much of the movie could I like storyboard? And even from the jump, even from the very first time I saw Night of the Comet, I feel like I could have recreated the entire movie from scratch just with one viewing. It is so memorable for some reason and actually influential in a sneaky way since it did influence the creation of the famous Buffy Summers. And, you know, this movie is so good. It called into question the whole concept of cheesy to me. And actually, I think I'm going to let it be cheesy since it got so many votes in that category. But I think because it's so good, it's actually going to like change the genre for me here. I'll give you an example, right? Like cheesy movies have no right to be profound, (laughs) but sometimes even if a movie is just trying to be entertaining, it can end up having a really strong effect on a subject. For example, Terminator, the Skynet from the Terminator movies is more in the popular culture's minds of what are the threats of AI than a movie like Ex Machina, which definitely thought through the concept of AI more deeply than the Terminator movies did. But it's Skynet that is going to be in our minds the first time like there's an AI revolt. Now, there's a movie that I didn't care for very much called Don't Look Up, which was like it was very on the nose what that movie was about. But I feel like Night of the Comet is it is saying the same thing in a way that don't look up is um or at least is talking about and visualizing dystopia and apocalyptic end of the world scenarios and how oblivious humans are to like an oncoming threat and like I know don't look up tried really really hard to be really deep about this subject but I feel like it got it gets beat by Night of the Comet by a mile. There's a lot of tragic wildfires that have been happening in the weeks prior to me recording this podcast episode. And when you see that like changing color of the sky and, and whatnot, Night of the Comet is the first movie that comes to my mind. 
this movie just has so much going for it. People forget that this is also a Christmas movie. Actually, 1984 was like the year for Christmas horror, apparently. You had, in the same year, Gremlins, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Night of the Comet. I think even Don't Open Till Christmas came out that year. You know, like 81 was the werewolf year. Well, 84 is the Christmas horror year. And this movie just is gorgeous to look at. It's so strong in its characterization. It's authentic. You you instantly know these people and you instantly admire these people. So like the I, I always try to notice, like, what's the first time a character comes on the screen? What's the character introduction? And in this movie, the introduction of Reg is just the most determined look on her face playing that video game. And and she has a plan. Like, she's trying to have her initials just be the only initials that appear anywhere in the leader screen on that game. She's not going to be distracted by stupid things like her job duties or her boss, whatever. She's focused on her goal. And the first time we see her sister, Sam, she is so profoundly bored. <laughs> she might as well have like on an existentialism shirt, like a picture of Nietzsche in the background. She looks like she couldn't. It would take literally the world ending to get her interest, which turns out is what's going to happen. But these sisters just have such a great dynamic, such a interesting and good relationship. It even plays over the phone. I mean, that's hard to do to not even have the characters face to face and sell us on the fact that these two people really know each other, really are connected, really get along and really each have something that the other one really is going to come to need or lean on. And Regina is basically the Ripley of this movie, and Samantha is its Harley Quinn. The absolutely bone-chilling and haunting mall scene, well, it's a super fun scene at first, and then it goes badly sideways. This scared the hell out of me when I when I was a kid and I first saw this scene with the um, let's play a game. It's called Scary no Noises Guy. Oh, my God. Terrifying. But before they get captured, Samantha is running around the scene like Harley Quinning it up. Just absolutely carefree at playing life and death stakes. So obviously I'm jumping around a bit out of enthusiasm. I'm assuming you've seen the movie. If you haven't, please fix that. I just can't imagine not enjoying this masterpiece. But like the whole comet arriving and wiping everybody out the the color of the sky afterwards the silence the the dust of the everyone getting turned into ash uh with all their clothes intermingled with it is still haunting and then after having coincidentally been hiding been in shelter situations where the comet rays couldn't affect them as uh Reg and Sam emerged the next day we get this incredible sequence of automated things gently springing to life. It's sinister and actually kind of sad. We have like the the in the pool, the pool water starts moving. This uh, flotation duck starts going across the surface with well, a kid was once playing with it. But now the kid has been vaporized. So it's just this duck 
taking its melancholy path across the pool. The pool, a cleaner Roomba thing, just turns to life and starts cleaning the pool that no one's going to be using. The school bell ringing in the background for, like, classes that will never come. And then most startlingly, the radio station with apparently... Uh, disc jockey just in there playing songs, which we're going to find out in a second. But before that happens, we get an absolutely brutal first kill as Reggie's boyfriend gets taken out at the theater they were staying in by our first zombie. And this is startling for a few reasons because we don't, we're not quite sure what these things are. And this one strikes so quickly with no warning I think he uses a wrench to kill Larry. So we got two wielding zombies and he can talk. We find out later when he confronts uh, Reggie in the alley behind the theater. So as horror fans, we're all thrown off here. What kind of zombies are we dealing with? These comet zombies seem to be dehydrating into dust. So they need blood more than flesh. It seems. And they're also decaying pretty fast. It's just kind of like a horrible recipe, but the look of the first Comet Zombie is amazing. Just a great design. And Reggie is so cool in this scene. She's like communicating to the zombie, I don't want to hurt you. Obviously thinking that it's just like a, a, a crazy guy, right? But like still the fact that we, I, in the first time I saw this scene, like we just watched this zombie take out her larger than her boyfriend. And I felt, even the first time watching and not knowing what was going to happen, no threat to her. I felt like she had the situation handled from the jump, and she does. Reg and Sam have an awful mother, so I think the unsung hero of this movie is their dad because they're all kinds of prepared for tough situations in terms of gun training, like self-defense training. There's a very oddly touching moment once Reggie gets out of there She's driving on her motorcycle through this amazing sequence of getting through Los Angeles, um, seeing all the disintegrated people on the ground, the clothes, just great shots of the sky and the buildings. Just, I mean, this movie is like a series of paintings in moments. But when she she's heading home, she gets to a stoplight and just stops. There's no traffic. Nothing's moving. Clearly, nobody's left. There's a car next to her with nobody in it just playing a song. And she's just sitting here, like, waiting for the light, still obeying the rules out of habit in an empty world. And then she gets home and she has to convince Sam that the world has ended. And it's it's really effect, emotionally affecting. It's a, it's a great, like, little uh, sequence of moments of her saying, there's no kids outside playing. There's no one answering phones. And the way Kelly Maroney plays this is just so interesting because she doesn't want to face this reality. So she just goes back to making breakfast or whatever. But it's in a determined way. It's not in a in a weak way. It's got its own strength to it. Her denial has its own like stubborn strength to it, which is so much better than, than a movie like this on paper should be pulling off. But the scenes are really good. So because the sisters think there's someone at the radio station, because there's a voice coming out of it, they drive there, find out it's a pre-recorded show that's playing. And then we have another great setting. I loved the theater setting with the signs, with the you know Midnight Comet show, whatever it says on them. 
Um, I really liked the um, house setting. And now I love the setting in the radio station. And every kind of end of the world movie where you're trying to figure out if there's other survivors um, has these moments where the, someone gets on a radio and like broadcast or someone, you know, is, is trying to send out a signal like is anyone out there. And this has the best and most stylish version of that ever with Sam just like getting rid of the robot host and creating her own impromptu radio show, changing the rules for humanity, dropping the drinking age to 10. Although, as she says, you're going to need ID still. Let's be real. Calling herself one third owner of, of the Los Angeles Basin area, canceling all education in one fell swoop. And she is broadcasting and she is getting survivors attention, but it's not um, on purpose. She's just doing her thing, which is amazing. This scene gives us the immortal. I'll be taking uh, requests from all you teenage combat zombies on the hit line quote. And that's another thing about this movie. And I think it is not just a testament to how well it's written. It's also a part of the factor of why it's so memorable. It's just so quotable. There are so many epic lines in this film. There's the, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. There's the, see, this is the problem with these things. Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. Amazing. There's the, you may as well face the facts. The whole burden of civilization has fallen upon us. The Mac 10 submachine gun was practically designed for housewives. Even some of the moments that aren't as commonly quoted are still just as amazing. The great confrontation between one of the evil doctors telling her, asking her, are you pregnant? And her saying, no, I thought it was once. And the doctor saying, that's not important. And her going, that's what you think. It was the longest three weeks of my life. I mean, it would take me a full 10 minutes to quote them all. So I'm not going to do that. But like, this is such a rich movie verbally. Now, the remaining scientists that we're at least aware of at the end of the world in this movie have turned themselves into a group of vampires. They're basically just taking blood to try to theoretically make serum, but it just they're just like pulling blood from every survivor they find, which is terrifying in its own right. I mean, we're already dealing with zomb comet zombies here. Now, like Stephen King's The Shop has entered the picture. But that's fortune for us as the audience because we get treated to two great new characters. One named Audrey, played by the fantastic Mary Warrenov, and the other, Dr. Carter, who's the leader of the think tank, played by the legendary uh, Joffrey Lewis. And I think it's really interesting. I read somewhere that the director had talked to um, the Catherine and Kelly about what would you want to do? What would you be doing at the end of the world? Like, what would you be interested in? And it led to some of the scenes in the movie. So the fact that he was pulling from the actual actors who were going to be portraying this, I think is amazing. And if that's true, that it steered the movie. I think that's just a wonderful way to do something like this. So, um, and if I remember what I read right, the directors or the, whoever was relating this said that the, it was sort of fun, right? Like the end of the world is fun to think of. I mean, they had a horrible parent. They, they, as far as I can tell, <laughs> um, Reggie's boyfriend wasn't all that magnificent. It, it didn't seem like life was super fun. And now you've got your run of the place. So let's go shopping and they're going to go to the mall. And they only got sad when they thought of 
Like, what, what do you? What's the dating going to be like at the end of the world? Which is, I'm, I'm glad Hector, the character of Hector, is in this movie because, and he, Robert Beltran's fantastic. I mean, everyone is fantastic in this movie, but the character is. It's interesting that they were able to get a character in here and not have someone get between the wonderful dynamic between Reggie and Sam. That they were able to keep that intact and introduce a fully integrated other character into that mix is just, I, I mean, I'm just going to say it. It's really deft. <laughs> so our heroes go shopping. They get into what to me as a kid was the scariest moment of this film. Just absolutely horrifying. We've got this like zombie. I don't know what he's, he's giving like a diatribe on <laughs> capitalism and achievement. It like reminded me of some of the speechifying that, Negan would do on uh, Walking Dead. And then the sisters get separated. One gets taken back to the think tank. One stays with Audrey. And I remember, I mean, I'm sort of counting this as attached to the mall scene because all of this really bothered me as a kid when I first saw it. I found all of this unsettling. But the movie gets an almost hushed vibe after the sisters are separated. It's like... Someone went by and tripped over the power cord and pulled the power cord out of the wall. Like their dynamic what was was what was powering the movie. And now it was just like coasting like a ghost ship in the fog. The the movie is coasting and it feels a little lost. I don't think it was lost. I think it's on purpose. I think it was to get this haunted vibe. And it's just a testament to how powerful the performances are that just by separating two characters, you can change the the alchemy of the entire movie itself. Audrey does the right thing. She takes out her colleague. She keeps Sam safe. It's a almost weirdly parental. Like this was the good mom that was missing from the movie. And she's here very briefly. Um, but it's just wonderfully well done. And meanwhile, Reg is back at the think tank. And this is like ransom a Red Chief situation. Like you always got to feel bad for the think tank because Reg is not taking any shit. She is not intimidated. I love how crazy she's driving Jeffrey Lewis in the interrogation scene when he's trying to interrogate her. Just amazing. She's like being held captive and she born supremacies her way out of it. Like the thing that Jason Bourne does in when he's being held in the embassy by the low level, whatever CIA, FBI, whatever that guy is. Um, she like sets up uh, like a, a, a bait and switch. So when the guy turns his attention, she can clobber him on the head, calls him a jerk, gets herself out of there. Meanwhile, Sam and Hector are riding to the rescue with this Trojan horse slash dynamite strategy that's just absolutely magnificent. Um, and Sam, again, she just has like this, I mean, almost sinister glee with which she's going about um, freeing her sister and also just straight up fucking with the think tank. Like, I, I can't believe we don't have more movies with these two or even three, even adding in Hector characters in them. It makes me, like, I'm glad it's perfect the way it is and just left that way, but oh my god, I crave so much more of this. Sam, even without knowing it, kills everyone on life support, so she's basically turned into hell from 2001 in this sequence. 
just like twirling and whistling and murdering people without a care in the world. They do rescue the only good people seemingly left, the two innocent children, because now that Audrey's left us, there's not really anyone else to care about, except for one last surprise at the end, which we'll get to, which is also incredible. But like the scientists who are holding the kids hostage and about to euthanize them and like take their blood, they just leave them behind like in a in a trap that they set up because all of a sudden they're Heath Ledger's Joker complete with a sign (laughs) next to them saying they're off to see Santa Claus, which is the terrible uh, thing they were telling the kids to try to get them to like breathe the gas, which led to the immortal line. Our parents told us never to breathe anything from strangers. Are you kidding me with this movie? Then they jump in the car and get to a safe distance, but they don't leave because Hector's rigged the scientist's cars with dynamite. So they get to blow up, but not before the movie gives us one last terrible fright also really unsettled me when I was a child and still kind of gets me to this day, which is when Joffrey Lewis is like fully turning at this point in the car in this incredible shot turns to his companion, doesn't even say a word, just goes to turn on the keys because he wants to get the chase underway. But he looks terrifying. It looks like something out of Salem's lot here. They get blown sky high. Sam gives one of the greatest line readings ever with her, like, all right, Hector, giving up grudging respect. And then we get the amazing ending of the film as, like, the rain washes away the human dust that's everywhere that they've been breathing in this entire movie, which is horrifying if you stop to contemplate it. Uh, so, so everything clears. Everything gets kind of washed clean. We're in a Eve and Eve situation. Um, and we, we see them start to reconstitute society. Have that, they have that amazing conversation about why you don't cross against the light. You got to maintain the rules They're They've created a family unit already between Hector and Reggie and the two kids. And it's so funny because we've looped back to the beginning where we first met Sam, where she was like terribly bored um, because the kids are so bored with having to dress up and get their pictures taken. It's this is what I was saying about the cheesy thing. But like th- this is a cliche. This is a trope, but it's doing it so well. And it's doing it absolutely consciously on purpose, which is why I don't feel like cheesy is exactly the right thing to say about any of this going on, because this is the Citizen Kane of combat zombie movies. But we get. Sam refusing to wait for the light, getting into the middle of the street, and then the only car left on planet Earth coming screaming down the street and almost hitting her because this movie is ingenious and brave. And when it goes for the joke, it goes for it. Now, I didn't mention when we met. I mean, I mentioned when we met Reggie that she was playing a video game and putting her initials on it. What I didn't mention at the time was she was annoyed to no end by the fact that someone else's initials had gotten to sixth place on the leaderboard, and those initials were DMK, which are immortal initials in horror now, as far as I'm concerned. And I think one of the great undersold moments of this movie is when she goes back to play the video game later and gets him removed from the chart. She gets to put Reg in six plate and watch DMK's initials go. And if you go back and look at that scene in that moment, everything we need to know about this character is in that moment. Like that's how good this performance and writing are. 
she's like, that's the end of you, DMK. And with a slight smile and just how formidable this person is, like determined to achieve. She didn't forget her goal here to get this whole leaderboard to herself, but she's not doing it in like. Uh, the the douchey way like a lot of people would be like trying to assert dominance she's just doing it because it's not about dominance it's about a goal she set for herself it's about a measure of control she can assert in a life where she's still too young to get full control over it she's like 18 i believe she's right on the verge of seizing the wheel of getting control and she's almost like preparing herself for it. So back to the end of the movie, Sam's dodging this car, gets out of the way. And then now we have like uh, two couples instead of one instantly created. So Sam isn't left out. She gets her own boyfriend and her boyfriend is Danny Mason Keener. And as he drives away, we see the license plate says DMK and, you know, a lesser movie, I mean, it's a great moment, but a movie like not as great as this would have ended on that license plate shot. But we get this really cool, quiet moment of the rest of the family unit playing football out in the middle of the street, ignoring their own light rule. Right. Because they've already they've already Sam has already blown that rule. Right. But like just this this moment of. We're in such good hands with civilization being restarted by these people. Like, here's the thing. The, the, the nauseating thing that happens at the end of Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, where the people that are left in the bunker, the president and, and Strangelove himself and the generals and the Russian ambassador or whatever, and they're all kind of like mulling over what if there's a nuclear apocalypse, like how do we restart society? And they, they're like, we take the 500 best people, best according to us. Of course, that includes all of us. And then we repopulate the earth from those people. And as they're talking through their plan, you can tell instantly that they're going to be redoing every single mistake that humanity has made. And it's just all going to happen over again. The most terrifying concept in philosophy is a thing called eternal recurrence. It was invented by Nietzsche, and his idea was everything's going to happen the same way over and over and over again, eternally, with no out, no stop. Everything is just going to be the same over and over, which is horrifying to think about, right? But in a lot of end-of-the-world movies either try to sell you that the people they're leaving you with are going to do it better or they're telling you that it's all going to happen again awful or they just end it right like don't look up or melancholia or whatever of all the end of the world movies i've ever seen and i've seen a lot this is the one i would pick if if we had to pick people to restart civilization from scratch it would be these people and maybe the people at the end of Mars Attacks, but then the world didn't really end there. And I'm only saying Mars Attacks because I always want to live in a yurt or igloo or whatever he says. This should be the, the new housing uh, structure of choice for humanity <laughs> as we rerun things. From top to bottom, from edge to edge, inside all the corners of this movie is greatness. I fucking love Night of the Comet. It's scary. It's interesting. It's radical. It's brave. It tries crazy stuff, but but still feels super real and grounded. And there's just never been anything else like it. There's 
as as good as the exorcist is as good as like a lot of the greats of horror as good as rosemary's baby is like i've seen other movies eventually capture a lot of that feel there's nothing like night of the comet so obviously i am so excited that this got the most votes and is also my personal pick for the greatest absolutely greatest cheesy horror movie of all time now before i go real quick um i want to talk about the last voyage of the demeter it occurs to me that because of the construct of this podcast we don't talk about single uh current movies very much and i'm going to change that a little bit i do many reviews in the subscriber group which i'll link in the show notes which is the best way to support this podcast to help us keep this going um, and create more of it. And I do have to mention that supporter of Horror Weekly, Lee, came up with the idea for this episode. So you can go into that supporter group um, following the link in the show notes and give me direct suggestions about what the podcast episode itself should be. Like, what is the question? So if you've ever had the urge to ask more than half a million horror fans online a question, you can ask them through me. So just come into the subscriber group and give me that suggestion and I will try to make it happen for you if it works. But because 99% of all other horror podcasts do precisely the single movie review thing, whether they reach back in the past to review a movie like let's do a review of Halloween three or whatever, or whether they're reviewing, you know, the movies coming out currently. Um, that's kind of like what the whole, everyone else is doing. And it's very hard to do that when you've built the podcast the way I have, but I liked uh, Demeter a lot. I didn't love it, but I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, it, it didn't, it, it's, I think part of why it feels a little bit like flat soda is that it, isn't surprising in any way, especially once the trailer gave away the look of the creature. And I know that annoyed a lot of horror fans and I respect that. I, I I sort of felt the same way, but I don't think the, really the creature look or design was the point. Exactly. It's not like it was so spectacular that it, you were going to be overawed when you saw it. It's really, You know, it would be disappointing to know what the xenomorph looked like before you went into Alien. But with this one, it didn't really bother me that much just because the design wasn't that impressive. It was cool and it was good to see Dracula being try trying to make Dracula uh, scary and not leaning into the romantic elements of it. Right. Which I like that part. But um, it bothered nothing about this movie is surprising. The setting is amazing, which I knew going I, I figured would be the case going into it. Being on that ship with the creaks and the sounds and the claustrophobia and the, you know, that that period feel to like what it was like back then to be out in the middle of just like an awfully big ocean with just wood and nails (laughs) holding things together and the stars to navigate by is just an inherently interesting concept. So that was great. The creature design was okay. I mean, it looked cool. It looked a little uh, ridiculous in parts. It looked kind of scary and intimidating in parts. Um, the performance was was fine, like with, with what it was given to do. It's the atmosphere of the film, right? Which is which we all know going in is probably going to be the strength of the movie. 
And then the characters they had to add to the actual story, because this is pulled from an actual chapter of Dracula, they clearly added some characters to to make things go. And I like the additions. We clearly needed people to care about being added to this movie, since we kind of know how the whole thing's going to turn out. Um, And Clemens, the the main character, uh, I guess, is fine. The captain of the ship is really cool. He's actually in the story, so... That makes sense that because they had something to draw on there. Um, and then my favorite character was Anna. Like they, they introduce, uh, you know, Dracula's, you know, he's just taking food for the trip. So he's got a couple extra humans or whatever in his crates of dirt um, in case like there's not enough people on the ship to eat during the voyage. Um, or he's attached to her because it's hinted that there's some kind of connection between them. He's not turning her or killing her the way he's doing other when he's ripping their throats out and and uh, and making them turn. He's she hasn't fully turned. So it's a slow, torturous process for her. But I thought she was just stellar. I thought the fact that she was the only one with the presence of mind to blow her way into uh, through a door obstacle while the other men were ineffectually like pawing at it and banging on it was was really cool. Um, I thought the way she was kind of dropping the knowledge throughout the movie was just enough. It wasn't a lot. She was getting a little exposition in there, but she was really good at it. Um, and I just I thought her character was really, really well drawn. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the ship people are sort of hard to distinguish from each other. Uh, and the other thing that the movie really has going for it is this movie just doesn't pull very many punches. It pulls like a doctor sleep baseball situation that I did not expect to to go down the way it did. Um, And it was, it was, I think the thing that makes the movie into the edge of very good from good is that it's just, it's ruthless about who's um, in trouble, who's in danger. And I like the visual of the final scene. I'm trying not to spoil the, the rest of it. In case you haven't seen it, but in the final moments, there's a great callback to uh, a cane we see earlier, which gives us like full on universal classic universal horror vibes and a callback to also the knocking sound, which is a really cool sound effect that I think they overused in the movie. It would have been cool once they tried it like three times. It was like get boring after the third time they were introducing it. But um, it is a cool idea and, and the callback to it. Um, being brought back into the movie with like in a different way. And then the final visual of it is a very Jack the Ripper esque, just a really great visual. So, you know, I love this director. I, I, I'm the hugest fan of troll hunter. I liked autopsy of Jane Doe, um, which was also really good with sounds um, that bell Jesus. Um, so it's, it's a, it's got a good cast. David Dallas Melchin as the second in command is, um, He's good. I mean, he's got a great screen presence. It's just, again, I don't feel like either him or Clement really were given that much interesting stuff to do. It was really, for some reason, all the interesting stuff was being given to Anna and, to some respect, the captain of the vessel himself. But it's a fun movie. It's got atmosphere for days. And um, to get that kind of, like, hammer horror in the modern time atmosphere, I feel like it is definitely uh, worth the watch. It's just unfortunately not surprising in any sense, except for who they choose to introduce into the movie only to have them killed. 
And that ruthlessness is a point in its favor. But in terms of its overall construction and execution, so I'm not talking about story here. Like, I, I, did, I, I knew going into it that the story is already a known quantity, right? So there's only so much you can do with that. It's like you're not going to inglorious bastards this thing and completely change uh, the history of Dracula. I don't think that would be a step too far for uh, a director and team trying to do a love letter to something that they were obviously going to stay mostly true to. So that was never in the cards, that kind of radical notion, but it's the execution of it, right? Like it's just good where I expected to be good and boring where I expected it to be boring and flawed where I expected it to be flawed. So it's a really good movie with uh, a, a choice about the Dracula design that works where it works. And then when you stop to think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense and then it's a little too long and a little too repetitive and um there there it is right i don't have a rating system for us yet and i'm very interested in what the community would think so if you're in the subscriber group let drop a a, a post there you can try to do it on the page and, and i'll i will try to see it i promise it's just when a page has you know 550,000 followers um, it's the volume of mess incoming messages and comments going on. It's just impossible for me to see them all until I turn this into my full-time thing, which I'm hoping to do. So, um, but I will definitely see it if it's in the subscriber group and it's likely I'll see it if you say it on threads, because our following is not <laughs> that large there. So it's hard for me to miss things. <laughs> um, but if you have an idea for the, how this community should be doing ratings, like, you know, how shutter does five skulls and you got stars and like whatever, we should have our own thing. I just don't have any idea what it should be and have no inspiration for it. So if you have an idea, uh, let me know. You can also let me know in the ter in forms of a review on the Apple platform where you can actually write something. On Spotify, all you can do is give a star rating to this podcast, which I appreciate. I've seen more of them come in. And, um, you have no idea how much like energy and uh, motivation that gives me week to week to make this keep happening and make it keep making it better each time at least in, that's the effort not saying i'm doing it just saying i'm trying um but on apple you can actually write it down so if you have an idea for uh how we should rate things ironically you could put it in a rating that would be kind of meta um we didn't have any uh written reviews from last week's episode space to now which made me a little sad but like i'm trying not to be greedy i'm just trying to be grateful because i i have no Right, and I had no expectation to have as many amazing uh, ones that have been there so far. But um, if you haven't done it yet, and that's something that you're that you have it in your heart to do, fantastic! You have no idea how much we appreciate it here. All right, that's it um, from. <laughs> I mean, I'll be taking no more requests at this time from all you teenage comet zombies out there on the hit line. The hit line's closing down until next Wednesday. Until then, have a great horror week. <laughs>